Our reading is from Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15, the supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Right, yeah, we're going to look at the Bible now. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look again at verse 15. I don't know if you were here last week, but I said we were going to look at this verse for a couple of weeks. The Bible begins with a description of the world and everything in it, okay? And the Bible uses language that likens the world to a temple, in particular the Old Testament temple, which the original readers of Genesis would be, have been familiar with. Now that is really important, I think. So Genesis depicts the, work, the whole world as the temple of God. So the creation stories in Genesis are structured and rhythmic in ways that were very reminiscent of the structures and rhythms of Israel's temple worship. Uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, the world and, and then the Garden of Eden are filled with flora and fauna, what was, which was also depicted in the temple, on the temple's walls and pillars and doors and furnishings. So, so the temple building reflected the whole of creation. And then there's us, human beings. Uh, Genesis 2 describes our role as human beings in the world with the very same words that also described the calling of the priests in the Old Testament temple. So, so we think saying Genesis kind of depicts the world as a temple. And then as human beings, Genesis 2 describes our role in the world as people in this, with the same words that also described the calling of the priests in the Old Testament temple. So they're the words to tend and to keep. So the priests uh, tended and kept the temple in the same way as all human beings had been told by God to tend and keep the very same words, the Garden of Eden and therefore the world, okay? So Genesis gives us this understanding of the world where the whole earth is seen as God's temple and we humans, are all meant to live like priests of God's creation. In other words, we're to be tending and keeping God's world as sacred and special and blessed because it is God's world and he's present with us here. Now, at one point in Genesis 1, there is a quite revolutionary use of temple language, and which in the ancient world, it really, it kind of rewrote the book on humanity's relationship with God and with each other and with the world. So every, every ancient Near Eastern culture that surrounded Israel, all of them had their temples. Some of them had lots of temples. And within these temples, there was always a depiction of whatever God was worshipped in that temple. Perhaps a statue in wood or stone or gold. And these statues in the temple were meant to represent the God who they depicted. They were actually considered to be that God's presence 
within the temple. And the people in the ancient world referred to these statues as images, uh, images of the gods. But Genesis 1 really breaks the mold when it says not, not that a stone or wood or golden statue is God's image in the world. Those were actually forbidden by the God of the Bible. Instead, it is us human beings that Genesis describes as the image of God in this world that is God's temple. So we human beings, we're told, were created in the image of God. So if the whole world is God's temple, then we human beings are supposed to be God's image within it. In other words, we are God's representation in the world. We demonstrate God's presence. We are God's visible image or reflection to each other and to everything else in this temple creation. Okay. So when God said, by the way, in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make a carved image of me, that was not because he thought we'd get his nose wrong or something. It was because we don't need one, because he'd already given one, and it's us. God begins the Bible by saying, you are my image in this great big temple that is the world. God was saying there, I want you to represent me in the world, not some lump of metal. I want you uh flesh and blood living breathing people who are capable of love and courage and compassion and joy and patience and hope i i made you god is saying to be my image here i want you human beings to represent me in the world not some lifeless lump of stone that can't do anything so that's where the bible begins we were made to reflect god and therefore bring god's blessing and glory to each other and to the whole universe. Now that was revolutionary when Genesis was written and actually I think it still is today. What does it mean? It means there is real purpose and dignity in humanity. Not only for each of us as individuals, but for us collectively, as communities and even as an entire human race. And that dignity and purpose that God has given us, when we understand it correctly, it is, it is a high calling but it avoids any pompousness or self-centeredness or arrogance. It avoids any boasting or taking advantage of things because our calling, when rightly understood, points us away from ourselves to the glory of God and everything. You know, we are supposed to reflect God's goodness and share that goodness of God with everyone and everything around us. So to be made in God's image gives us huge worth as human beings, but that worth is found in reflecting the love and grace of God towards each other, not puffing ourselves up. It is a blessing which always faces outwards. So God's glory is seen, of course, throughout the world in various ways. All of it's a magnificent temple, this glorious universe. But the place in this sort of temple creation where the goodness and glory and life-giving character of God is meant to be most clear and is meant to emanate and spread most obviously is from us humans. Because we are the image of God in his temple universe. Now, I probably don't need to tell you at this point that we don't always do a very good job at that. We do not do a very good job sometimes at being God's reflection, God's image of his character in this world. In fact, one way of understanding what the Bible says about our predicament as human beings that we're in is that we have fallen short of this calling that God's given us. 
One way of understanding, for example, what we mean by sin is that it's, falling, it's failing to live up to the reality of who we are, who God made us to be, his image bearers in the world. So in Romans 3, for example, Paul says we have all sinned, but then he describes that as meaning this, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Interesting. So sin is not just being naughty based on some arbitrary set of rules. Paul says it's far more tragic than that. It's about this calling we're given, an incredible privilege and responsibility. To, to we, we were called to kind of be the best bit in all of God's creation. But we're really not that sometimes. Our lives should be, could be temples of glory reflecting the character of God, but often they're not. So what can be done about it? What can be done about restoring this image of God to the center of who we are? Well, what God has done about it is basically Jesus. We are looking again at this incredible statement in Colossians 1 verse 15. It says, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Notice the word image there. That's our word. That's what Genesis says about humans. That's who we were created to be as a human race, the image of God in the world. That's who we often fail to be, but the Apostle Paul says here, that's who Jesus now is for us and in us. Because Paul will repeatedly say in this letter, everything that is true of Jesus becomes true of us or for us or in us as we center our lives on, on Jesus. So throughout this letter, this is quite important for understanding Paul's argument and um, points in this letter. Throughout this letter, whatever is said about Jesus always has a direct implication and effect on our lives, on who we are. For Paul, that connection is so great, he will say later on in this letter that we died with Christ when, when Christ died, and that we were raised with Christ when Christ was raised, and that our lives are now hidden above with Christ where he is seated now, and that we will appear with Christ in glory when he appears again. In other words, Paul's saying, look, it doesn't matter whether we were born yet when Jesus died and rose again. God sees us so connected to Jesus that whatever Jesus did applies to us as if we were there within him and with him. And for God, that is more true of you than anything else as a Christian, right? So everything that Jesus does is as true for us as for Jesus himself. It's like God always sees you connected to Jesus or encompassed within Jesus. So, so that for God, it's as true that we died, rose again, and are in glory with Jesus now today, as it is that we are sitting in this room. In fact, to God, it's kind of more true that our lives are actually found there with Christ than that we're here in this room, because all this, all this is just gonna pass one day. None of this will still be here. You know, this is just temporary but we will always be united to Jesus. Hallelujah. So, rem and remember that when you're stressed about your life or worried about what God thinks or struggling to make sense of who you are. As a Christian, yes, you might be sitting here today in a bit of a muddle and God knows that, but it's even more true to God that you are sitting at his side in Jesus Christ. Because as far as God is concerned, Jesus defines you more than anything else does, all right? Now that is a big concept, but a very important one. And it also means 
back in chapter 1, verse 15, it means that this statement about Jesus being the image of God says something about us today as well. It tells us that Jesus has and is somehow restoring to us who we should all be as human beings created in God's image. Now, I think he does that, Jesus, firstly, by restoring to us a correct understanding of ourselves, of of who we are as human beings. So that's about our identity. And that's true for our identity as individuals, yes, but also collectively as a human race. The fact that God became human in Jesus Christ, that he became flesh and blood, that he was born as one of us and is forever risen in human flesh as well. In other words, he will forever share in our human life and be part of our human race. That is an absolutely momentous statement from God about humanity. Okay, God does not despise humanity. He created us. And he has even become one with us in Christ, which puts beyond any doubt the value and worth invested in the human being, in you. So Jesus, as I say, firstly, I think he corrects any misunderstanding we might have about who we are and how God relates to us. God loves you. And he made you to know him and share in his life, his goodness, his love, his creativity, his glory, everything, to share in this great story of filling the world with the life of God, which is what Genesis means when it says we were created to be God's image in the world. Um, In the New Testament, Hebrews 2 majors on this subject of who we are. And it reflects, Hebrews 2 reflects on Psalm 8, which was written much, much earlier in the Bible. But the psalm says, when I consider the heavens, the moon and the stars, what is mankind that you're mindful of us and the children of men that you so care for us? So the psalm was wondering why in this unimaginably vast and glorious universe, why does God care so much about us? You know, about why does he think so much of us? Why does he love us so much as human beings? And the psalm is kind of just grateful that he does. But the author of Hebrews can take it further because Jesus has now happened. And Hebrews 2 says it's even more amazing because it says now we see Jesus, who although higher than everything, he's God, he actually became human. And and it says in Hebrews 2, he has now been crowned with glory. A human life, a human being, Jesus, has been crowned with God's glory again. It's like humanity back where it should be in Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 2 says, he for whom and by whom everything exists suffered for us in order to save us. And it says, since the children were flesh and blood, he himself shared in their humanity and is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters, his family. So Hebrews 2 is this incredible chapter about how Jesus assures us that God believes in our future as a human race and still cares and still calls us to share in his glory. But now we've got to focus on Jesus for that, for that journey. Um, there is a human crown with glory now, and it's Jesus, Hebrew says. So firstly, it's by looking at him, Jesus, that we get a correct understanding of who we are. We are loved by God who created us to reflect his character, his glory, to everything around us, just as we see Jesus doing himself in the Gospels. 
Jesus said he is the light of the world, but he also told us we too are the light of the world in Matthew 5, so that people may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That is exactly what images in temples were meant to do. People would see this image and praise God in their temple. But Jesus says, look, this is not about a lump of gold. People should see you human beings in this earth that is all a temple, and they should see you and your good deeds and praise the one who really is God. Okay. But what does that actually look like? We're nearly done, by the way. Uh, what does that actually look like? Well, this is secondly, the other thing I think Jesus does for us. He, sh- he shows us what it looks like in a human life. He, re- he reminds us we're the image of God. And then he shows us what does that look like in a human being? What does it look like for a human to be the image of God, to display who God is and what God's like and how good God is in the world? It looks exactly like Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is the character of God, perfectly seen, fully seen in a human life. So it can happen, and when it does, it looks like Jesus. You know that uh, that what would Jesus do thing? It's become a bit of a cliche, but it's a shame really it's become a cliche because it's actually a really good question. When we're wondering as Christians, how, how do I live? How do I respond to this situation or something? Well, actually, what would Jesus do is a pretty good question. Because it is Jesus who actually shows us what a human life reflecting God looks like. Now, I want to say this, that does not mean we're all exactly the same type of person with exactly the same personality or interests or tastes or talents or even sometimes opinions. As if God created, you know, God didn't create us to just be an army of clones. You know, we're all identical, exactly the same, a church full of robots you know, reading from the script, that would be very boring and probably quite creepy. Uh, But more to the point, think again about creation. Uh, Genesis 1 said, all of it was very good, God said, but it was full of variety. It actually says all these different kinds, it keeps saying, all these different kinds of life, but all all of it very good. And even the human being itself, uh, when Genesis, in Genesis 1, God says, let us create humankind in our image, it immediately says he created both male and female. In other words, there is variety even within the image of God in the human being, so that God is best reflected in our variety, in our interactions as communities, as we listen and learn from each other. As you know, that in one aspect, Genesis says one aspect of that, for example, is both the feminine and the masculine, which both display something of God's character. So it's not so much about our different personalities or interests or abilities, it's not about our different ages, or even whether we're male or female, more masculine or more feminine. We are all different in that respect, but it is about what it is about is the character of our lives. It's about how we treat one another and the world around us. We might be very different in terms of our interests or our personality, but every one of us as Christians is called to display the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, etc., that reflects the character of God, the fruit of the Spirit, for example. And Jesus is where we can actually see that lived out perfectly in a human life. So we can read the Gospels in the New Testament and we learn in, in those four Gospels a huge amount about how to live 
in the image of God because Jesus is our perfect example of it, of the image of God in a human life. And by looking at him, it will affect our lives in profound ways. Keep reading the Gospels because we become what we worship. We really do. We become like whatever it is we're worshipping. And this is why I think faulty views of bad views of God can be so harmful. If we see God as a miser, we will become miserly. If we see him as hateful, we will become hateful. But if we see God in Christ, we will become more like Christ. If we see, for example, Jesus crucified for me, then we will take up our crosses and bear each other's burdens, which we're told is the law of Christ. Uh, if we see Jesus standing with the oppressed and the outcasts, we will stand with them too. If we see Jesus bringing hope and restoration to people, we will want to do the same today. Basically, if we see that, you know, this is the way the New Testament puts it. If we see that he has so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. That's how the New Testament sums it up. If he's loved us in this way, we ought to love one another. Jesus said, didn't he? You know, love one another as I've loved you. That's how people will see you're my disciples. At one point in his letter to the Romans, Paul describes the goal of our salvation as this, as us being conformed to the image of God's son. In other words, that we will become more like Jesus, who is the image of God. We will become the image of Jesus, who is the image of God. So God is shaping us more and more to be a better representation of his character in the world. That's who we are as Christians. That's who we're called to be as a church, because actually that's who God made all of us to be as a human race. So may God always lead us to Jesus so that we can become more like him.